Welcome to Visiting Professors. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. On this program, we ask a community-based medical oncologist to host a visit to their clinic of a clinical investigator to meet a number of patients and review their cases. And on this program, Dr. Rich Zelkowitz of Norwalk, Connecticut, hosted Dr. Harold Burstein from Dana-Farber Cancer Center. Afterwards, I chatted with these physicians about the cases, beginning with a premenopausal woman with a node-negative tumor as presented by Dr. Zelkowitz. The first person we met today was a 48-year-old environmental attorney, and her story in summary is she has a T1B N0M0 breast cancer. It was 8 millimeters. It was graded on the needle biopsy as a grade 1 and moderately differentiated on the excision. It was estrogen and progesterone strongly positive. HER2 knew was negative by fish, a 1.3, after the IHC was 2+. plus. Her oncotype is 15, and she was genetically tested because of her ethnicity and her young age, and she was negative for the BRCA mutations. Now, has she or you made a decision yet about what you want to do about adjuvant chemotherapy? Yeah, we have. She has seen a number of different people. After a lot of soul-searching, she's decided to proceed with radiation, which is over, and she started tamoxifen at the end of radiation. Hal, what are your thoughts about this case and this woman? Well, this is a fascinating, intelligent woman who really shared with us a lot of pieces of breast cancer survivorship that were very powerful. One was that even though she's met multiple providers, she clearly worries every day about whether or not she made the right decision. She said to us that at work, because she is back at work, that she's sufficiently engaged and productive that she doesn't think about it. But every day when she's either at home by herself or when she's out for a run or something like that, she thinks whether she made the right decision about chemotherapy. Interestingly, she has not talked about her decision or her diagnosis with many people, only a couple of people at work, the very minimum number of people who would cover her tasks and would be responsible for her schedule and things like that. And we asked her, why was it so hard not to get chemotherapy, given that she had an oncotype score that was in the low risk range at 15? And she said a couple of interesting things to me. She said one was, it's because getting cancer means you get chemotherapy, that somehow a part of the experience is you're supposed to get chemotherapy, and that's what helps people do better. And she also made it clear that she would accept chemotherapy for a very, very small benefit. If we had said to her, there's a 1% benefit or a 2% benefit for adding chemotherapy to your case, then she would, to this day, I think, Rich, still accept chemotherapy. And to me, that underscored one of the very powerful pieces of the molecular diagnostic assays like the Oncotype DX recurrence score, which is there's a big difference between saying, you have a really good prognosis and we don't think chemo is going to help much, and saying, you have a really good prognosis and chemo does not help, period. You have to get to that zero point of benefit, which has been impossible to do without the molecular diagnostic assays, and as everyone here knows, impossible to do with traditional pathology. But she is one of those women who clearly would take anything for a negligible benefit. And she spoke very poignantly about caring for her son, a 13-year-old, with whom she has not shared the cancer diagnosis because she was worried about his feelings about it. 
And one of the things that was important for her now was that she didn't have to get chemo. She didn't have to raise that issue with her son because it's essentially invisible to him. So I was really struck both by the ongoing wrestling that she has with this, but also about you know, needing to get to that zero point in the decision-making. I'm not sure if you mentioned this, but what was the grade? The grade was read variably, as I understand it. One out of three on the core, two out of three on the excisional. Right. And then she had a probably a third or a fourth opinion where it was reviewed at another cancer center, and they called it grade three. So it's now been all over the map in terms of its assessment. And, you know, on the one hand, it's tempting to pillory the pathologists and say, this is why we need molecular diagnostic assays, because no two pathologists can agree on these things. On the other hand, you know, I would assume it's a moderately differentiated cancer. Right. I'm curious what your thoughts are about the so-called RSPC. It's sort of a variation on the recurrence score that the NSABP has reported a couple times now, Hal, to try to kind of add additional information into cases where people remain on the fence after getting an oncotype. Can you comment on what that test is and what do you think about it? Well, the RSPC is just a different algorithm. So it takes the Oncotype DX recurrence score and then adds to a clinical decision model things like tumor size and grade and other clinical factors. And the most important thing to know about it is that really it doesn't change the predictive value of the assay for figuring out who needs chemotherapy or who does not. So on the one hand, I think as clinicians, we all bring extra things to the table. And if we had a patient who had an intermediate score I think we might feel differently if she had an 8-millimeter cancer versus a 3.2-centimeter cancer, or if the tumor were thought to be higher grade versus lower grade. But the RSPC really hasn't helped materially change our decision-making for interpreting the recurrence score. You know, I've read a little bit about it, too. Intuitively, it's very appealing, though, because, you know, are all oncotypes of 15 the same? Is an oncotype of 15 the same in the 8-millimeter as the 3-centimeter tumor? So they probably aren't. You're probably right. The dilemma is that the data don't allow us to really tease it apart right. in a totally constructive way. And some of that may just be the selection of patients who've had tumors tested or who have participated in the canonical studies. But the point I often try to make to patients and to doctors when using a test like the Oncotype DX test is that it's not a substitution for clinical thinking. You know, it's an adjunctive piece of information. So in this case, you had a small cancer. You could have made the argument not to give her chemotherapy anyway. She had an eight millimeter node negative, ER positive, HER2 negative cancer. The benefits of chemotherapy by any historical measure are going to be really small. In, in the NSABP experience of sub-centimeter tumors, you know, the benefit of adding chemotherapy is only 2%, and that included mostly women who even had larger tumors because most of them were 9 to 10 millimeters in size. So you could have just said, eh, marginal benefits for chemo at most here anyway. I think the oncotype shades that further by saying, even within that group, this is not a case where there's likely to be a major gain. Oh, I agree. Well, one of the reasons I was bringing up the grade is because of that, the people, I think even grade is... I mean, it's part of adjuvant. I think it's part of the RSPC. But, you know, here's this case where you have from one to three, people bring up KI-67. And there are places in the United States where that's done. Rich, I don't know whether you get KI-67 results. But how, you know, if you have supposedly a reliable lab who knows how to do a KI-67 and can read grade, can that begin to approximate what we're getting at a recurrence score? Well, it probably can. I mean, the recurrence score includes key 67 as one of its 21 genes. So it's no surprise that there is 
an overlap between key 67 scores and Oncotype DX. The question is whether you can use one instead of the other. The Europeans are more convinced that you can just use key 67 to risk stratify patients. I was just at the St. Gallen meeting three or four weeks ago in Switzerland, and the European community seems to rely a lot on key 67 for risk stratification, and in particular, distinguishing what you might call as a shorthand a luminal A, that is ER positive, lower grade, HER2 negative, versus a luminal B, ER positive, not so much, uh, higher grade, more proliferative cancer. And they have these relatively arbitrary cutoffs of a 14% score on the key 67. There remain persistent technical challenges in reproducibility of key 67. Those have been an ongoing problem for people who want to build it into guideline panels. But key 67 probably is a pretty powerful marker for a lot of things. And in fact, ASCO has never endorsed key 67 in their biomarker assays, but it's not because there isn't a large and robust literature. It probably is a very strong prognostic marker. It's been harder to know where to draw the thresholds for using it to decide whether to give chemo. So I've got to ask you, I actually went to the St. Galen meeting once, a little bit too remote for me, but anyhow, it's certainly a lot of fun. What did they actually say about Oncotype since it's a, you know, European-driven meeting? What did they say about Mamaprint? What was their conclusion? Well, the final wording is still being finalized. In years past, they have said that, you know, sufficiently validated, available molecular diagnostic tests can help decision-making for patients with ER-positive breast cancer, which means anything you want it to mean. It means if you've got an oncotype in your backyard and you like it, it's fine. And it means if you don't want to order the test, you don't have to because you can always find a reason. Increasingly at this meeting, there was enthusiasm for these molecular diagnostics. And on a show of hands vote for the expert panel, something north of 90% felt that oncotype DX was a valid assay for helping to guide clinical decisions on whether to give chemo. I mean, there's always the reimbursement cost kind of issue. Did they kind of say anything about Mamaprint? There was less dialogue this year about Mamaprint, though I must say there was less dialogue about these assays overall than there was two years ago when they had sort of splashed more onto the scene. You know, Mamaprint continues to lack data linked to compelling treatment studies. And so for the most part, the Americans are not using it. And the Europeans are exploring it in the MindAct trial, but are only infrequently ordering it on a regular basis.